Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation on food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And we have a special episode to share with you this week. On October 29th, Share Our Strength and Food and Society at the Aspen Institute launched Conversations on Food Justice. This is a series designed to examine the roots and the evolution of the food movement and how it intersects with race and class, as well as health, educational, and environmental inequities. Together, we hope to elevate voices that educate, inspire, and challenge ourselves and others to go beyond charitable responses and address the root causes of why so many Americans experience hunger. If we don't aim our efforts toward food justice, then the anti-hunger work that we're so committed to, though essential, it will be merely a band-aid and not a solution. And we know that hunger in America is a solvable problem. Our first session, which you're about to hear, explored the origins of the food justice movement and how it intersects with fostering racial equality. The USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, piloted a school breakfast program in 1966, but it was the Black Panthers who brought the model of free breakfast to national attention in 1969. Since expanding, Cool Breakfast is such a key piece of No Kid Hungry's work. The series kicked off with a program called The Radical Origins of Free Breakfast and the Food Justice Movement. It featured these panelists, Ms. Davida Davison, the executive director of the Food Lab in Detroit. Davida Davis is an activist and her organization, the Food Lab in Detroit, is an organization created to provide guidance and support to independently owned food businesses who are exploring business models that create a more equitable and sustainable environment for their employees, for their producers, and people in the community. We're also here from Ms. Erica Huggins, a human rights activist, a poet, educator, Black Panther leader. For the past 30 years, Erica has lectured throughout the United States and internationally, and her extraordinary life experiences have enabled her to speak personally and eloquently on issues relating to the physical and emotional well-being of women, children, and youth. Finally, Dr. Norbert Wilson, Professor of Food, Economics, and Community at Duke Divinity School at Duke University. Norbert Wilson's research touches on several food issues, including access, choice, and food waste. Wilson explores equity in food access and food safety and quality issues in international trade and domestic food systems. Share Strength and the Aspen Institute are really enthusiastic about this food justice series. We hope you'll listen. We hope you'll share your thoughts with us. We hope you'll be engaged in the conversation. Thanks so much. My name is Elliot Gaskins, Managing Director of Development at Share Strength. And let, let me give everybody a beat. I see there are so many folks streaming in. We'll give it one second here and get started. So again, I am L.A. Gaskins. And on behalf of Billy and Debbie Shore, the co-founders of Share Strength, Tom Nelson, our president and CEO, and all of my wonderful colleagues, we are very proud to welcome you to our conversation on food justice series, our collaboration with Food and Society and the Aspen Institute. Over the next 12 months, we hope this series will elevate important voices, educate on issues of urgent concern, and inspire and challenge us to address the root causes of why so many children and families experience hunger. For the past 35 years, 
at Share Our Strength, and most recently through our No Kid Hungry campaign, we have worked tirelessly to support kids and ensure they have the food they need. But today, our work is more important than ever. In addition to the pandemic, we have faced some of the most significant racial unrest we have seen in a generation. It has been difficult for all of us, but I believe it has led to a national reckoning and what some have been calling a global explosion of consciousness. The evils of systematic racism has been exposed in ways that have been important to see and the fragile safety net, the challenge parents have always had to feed their families have been laid bare in new ways. We realize today that more than ever, anti-hunger work and food justice is intertwined. One without the other will not lead to the long-term systematic change that will be essential to eradicate the hunger crisis. We hope this series will play a part in getting us closer to our ultimate goal of ensuring that every single family in this country can be confident that their children will have the food they need to realize their full potential. Thank you so much for being with us today. We are honored to be collaborating on this initiative with such an amazing organization. So let me introduce you to Corey Kummer, Executive Director of Food and Society at the Aspen Institute. Thank you, Elliot. Welcome to the exciting launch of our conversations on food justice. I'm Corby Kummer, Executive Director of Food and Society Program at the Aspen Institute, which brings together public health leaders, researchers, farmers, chefs, and food artisans to find practical solutions to food system challenges and inequities. Our goal is to help people of all income levels eat better and more healthful diets and enjoy them bite by bite. If the past few months have taught us anything, it's that racial equity and food justice aren't a lens we need to look through. They must be integral, work that comes naturally in everything we do. Our largest initiative is extending research into the food is medicine movement across the country. And Food and Society has released our safety first guidelines for restaurant workers and now diners, work where we put the health of restaurant workers first. You'll find links to all those initiatives on our website. We couldn't be more excited to have the chance to partner with Share Our Strength, whose No Kid Hungry and work of all kinds have always been one of our guiding models since we began our program. This felt like a once in a lifetime opportunity and our weekly meetings to discuss future topics of speakers have become the high point of our week. We couldn't be luckier or more honored to be joined today by three stellar speakers for our inaugural conversation, Erica Huggins, Davida Davison, and our moderator, Norbert Wilson. Some notes, we'll welcome your questions. Please use the chat button to submit questions anytime as people talk. We'll have backstage moderators keeping track of all of them for the last 10 to 15 minutes of today's one hour presentation. We'll also invite you to try out our exciting closed captioning by clicking the CC icon at the bottom right of your screen. We're piloting this new service today thanks to the tireless work of my wonderful colleague, Tracy Anderson, and we'll welcome comments on how well it works. You can look for a quick thank you tomorrow, pointing you to video and audio transcripts from this session, which you should of course feel free to share with everyone you know. It's now my real pleasure to introduce Norbert Wilson, my friend and sadly former faculty colleague at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. 
who has a wonderful new post at Duke University. Norbert, the floor is yours. Thank you, Corby. It is a pleasure to see you again and to be a part of this wonderful event. I begin our conversation by acknowledging that I am situated. I begin our conversation by acknowledging that I am situated in Durham, North Carolina on the ancestral lands of the Shakura, Eno, and Catawba people. I also recognize that I am a descendant of enslaved persons, all of which shape who I am today. I ask you in the audience to take a moment to acknowledge the indigenous people and the folks who brought you to this place where you live and work. Today, we will engage two powerful people of great wisdom and insight. First up, Erica Huggins is a human, human rights activist, poet, educator, Black Panther leader, and former political prisoner. In our earlier conversations, she challenged us to slow down, to pay attention, and to listen. I cannot wait to have her join our panel today. Davida Davison is the executive director of Food Lab Detroit, which is an organization that has as a vision to cultivate, to connect, and to catalyze to use food as an economic engine to form a supportive community of entrepreneurs and to make good food, really good food, available to all people of Detroit. If you haven't seen her TEDx or her TED Talk, I encourage you to watch it. You will want to join the Church of Food Justice that she's leading. Let's introduce our two speakers. Norbert, you want me to start, Norbert? I would love for you to start. I'm sorry, I was waiting for you all to join. No, um, yes. Please. No problem. Um, hey, everybody. Um, my name is Davida Davison, as Norbert indicated. And what I would like to do, and I am here um, in Detroit, Michigan, and I wish to recognize the Ashinabe people whose traditional land that I stand upon today. I want to pay my respects to the Ashinaabe people and their elders past and present who have been living and working on this land from time immortal. Michigan and Detroit specifically is a place of great ancestral significance. And we have the opportunity now to acknowledge past events and to use those events so that we can cultivate a growing understanding to energize and, and thus empower us and also the next generation. And I'm grateful for bringing this conversation together and all of those involved. And I'm so happy to be in conversation with Erica and for all the learning that we're going to do today. So good afternoon, everybody. Um, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much, Davida. And thank you, Norbert. And thank you, Corby and Elliot and everybody who's having this event happen. Food shouldn't be a privilege. It, we should have the right to food by being born and living on the planet. And it isn't so. I want to pause before I say anything more 
to honor the Ohlone peoples who are the tribal peoples of this land that I sit on, work on, be on in Oakland, California. There's so many other tribal peoples as well. And I believe that a land acknowledgement acknowledges not only the beauty of the land and the abundance of the land, but also that the land was stolen from indigenous tribal peoples. Oakland is so notable for many, many things, but it also is notable for its preeminence in starting movements for change and transformation. It's an incredible city. However, where I sit in it, if I look to my left, there is a houseless encampment. If I look in front of me and think about a mile away, there's another one. And if I look to my right and behind me, yet other ones. And the people there are starving. But with the help of organizations in community, certainly not entirely the city government, not the federal government, but good-hearted people are making food and delivering it. I love that. That's one of the things I love about Oakland, though it's contested as a good city to live in. I don't wanna say more right now. I'd like to turn it back to Norbert so you can begin this great conversation I'm looking forward to with Davida. Same here. Thank you both Erica and Davida for your introductions. Erica, you, you challenged me to engage in challenging, brave conversations today. And, and I'm sure that you all will do that as we invite our audience to also engage in this discussion. We are to talk about the Black Panther Party and its efforts in feeding children and the community, but we're also to think about this in terms of justice today. And in any freedom movement that I'm familiar with, building alliances across racial and ethnic and geographic, geographic boundaries has been integral to those freedom movements. How was this done with the Black Panther Party? And how can this approach inform our movements today, movements for justice? Erica, if you would please start. Thank you. Thank you for such thoughtful questions. You asked a number of questions there. Um, I want to apologize if for some reason you're distracted by the sunlight. That's all it is. And I think any light illumines the truth for us, right? Any light. So. I don't enjoy that it might distract you. I can't get away from it. And I think we need to live in the light. In answer to your question, Norbert, uh, the Black Panther Party never just went into community and did things. People told us what they needed. And when we asked at the party's inception and from there across the country as 40 chapters blossomed 
and chapters in Europe, in India and Africa and South and Latin America, um, they said the same things. And I wanna make a, um, a point really strongly that those programs then, like our food programs, the most well-known, the Free Breakfast for Children program, have been replicated to this day all over the world. And I'll give some examples later. What we did was go into the community and say, we know because you've told us that you want the end to police and other state-sanctioned violence. We know that. What else? Well, our babies are hungry. They go to school, but they don't have nutritious meals. And because we live in conditions of poverty, we can't provide what they need. We're not wealthy people. And the people I'm talking about then in the 60s, in 1966, the Black Panther Party was established in Oakland. And one of its first programs was the Free Breakfast for Children program. So the children could eat before they went to school because there's a connection we all know about by cl about clarity and retention of knowledge when you are studying, when you're learning, when you're reading. And nutrition is crucial. So we created the Free Breakfast for Children program first in church basements and then everywhere that we could in community centers, in empty cafeterias, those places for children. And I wanna say, we did not say which children could come. I wanna say 95% of the children that came were black and brown. Or as we say today, like indigenous people of color, children of color, babies, children, our children. And then the national free breakfast for children program was created. Why? Because the federal government was so embarrassed that the Black Panther Party had created something that flourished throughout every major city in the United States and then some. And we intended it with everything that we did that every, as we call them, community survival program, every one of those 65 programs. And I bet most people don't know that that's what we had because what you got in mass media, they were lies, many, many things. So those programs flourished because children were able to eat nutritious food. So I'll stop there. I hope that begins answering your questions. And I know Davida can talk about even more directly how those, the systems of inequity have not changed. Otherwise there wouldn't be Food Lab Detroit, right? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, Norbert, I'll, I'll um, kind of uh, piggyback on, on what Erica just said, if I may. But Erica, what, it, 
would you be so gracious enough to allow me to take it back even before 1966 Absolutely. when the Black Panther started the free breakfast program? And we didn't come out of thin air. There was, a, there was a reason historically why exactly. we did what we did. So yes, please. Yeah, um, because you know the title of this talk is really about exploring the origins of the food justice movement. And I don't think one organization or one person could claim um, themselves as the originators of food justice and, and movement building. Norbert and, and Erica, you remember when we were in conversation for our pre-call, one of the things Norbert, you challenged us, you asked us and, and Erica echoed this sentiment was, what was it that brought you to this work? That's what you asked. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about that since our conversation. And I, and I say that because for me, and I challenge those individuals who are listening to this conversation right now, but for me, it's important to recognize that memory. Memory is a part of history, even if it's not codified in a book or in the archive, but memory and your personal history becomes a way in which you navigate the world and it gives you a sense of possibility and a sense of responsibility. And it is that connection to memory that brings me to this work. And it's not my memory, it's my parents' memory. It's the memory that my ancestors have shared with me, it's the stories that they have told me that bring me to this work. And so Norbert, you identified yourself as a descendant of the enslaved. I too am a descendant of the enslaved. I too am a descendant of sharecroppers and farmers. I too understand that my family migrated from the rural South to the North. And I identify also as a first generation Detroiter. This is all relevant of what brings me to this work. And I'm a first generation Detroiter because again, my mother and father fled the Jim Crow South, fleeing racial terror, fleeing state sanctioned violence as Erica lifted up, fleeing what we call de jure segregation and racial terror of Jim Crow. And the reason why I wanted to provide that context about my personal history and the things that I remember is because there's no coincidence that my mother left the South in 1962. I'm gonna pause right there. I know Erica likes for us to take breaths and to pause and sit with things. So 1962, it's no coincidence that that's when she left the South because our history tells us and my ancestors told me about what was called the Greenwood Food Blockade that happened in 1962. And it's important that I lift that up, that bit of history up in this moment, as we are in election season at this moment, because reprisals have always been aimed at Black folks trying to repress our ability to cast a vote. And the Greenwood food blockade in 1962 was an effort for Black folks to not vote in Mississippi and also in Alabama, right? So in the winter of 1962 and 1963 in Mississippi, the Board of Supervisors voted to cut something that was called the Federal Surplus Committee's Commodities Program. 
And that program is what helped to feed my grandfather, my grandmother, my mother, aunts and uncles, because they were sharecroppers and farmers. And during the winter months, it was really hard for them to farm. And so what happened is that program provide my parents and my grandparents and my great grandparents and 90% of black folks in the South in the winter months provide them with things like meal and flour and powdered milk. It held them over during the winter months until they were able to farm again. And they killed that program because they were trying to repress black folks the right to vote. Because we were trying to vote, they were like, no, no, what, you, what we're gonna do is we're not going to feed you. And my mother tells me it was for the first time that black folks then in the South saw this clear connection between political participation and putting food on their table. But you think that that would stop black folks and their ability to vote. You would think, wow, they're hungry, they can't eat, they're poor, where are they gonna get food from? So mommy and daddy fled Alabama and Mississippi, 1962, headed to the north. You know how black folks got fed when the government cut us off? It's through what we now know is mutual aid and solidarity. That's how they got fed. Because SNCC, and we know we heard about SNCC because, you know, that was John Lewis's organization and he charged us to get into trouble, good trouble. And John Lewis has been getting into good trouble for a long time. But it was SNCC field organizers in their northern network that not only continued voter education, but it was the folks up in the north who sent food back down to the south to feed our people. So this feeding each other, taking care of one another, this ain't anything new. It was Fannie Lou Hamer who famously said, when you got 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, nobody can push you around and tell you what to do. The lesson here is that we can't free ourselves until we feed ourselves. That's the lesson. And so that memory of mommy and daddy leaving the South, coming to North, not only for a better opportunity for their unborn children, myself and my brother, but also to be a part of that connection that was also sending food back down home, my God. And then I think lastly, the memory of what brings me to this work around food justice has to be back in 1975 when I was at that time six years old. My brother was just born in 1975, but I was six and Mayor Coleman Alexander Young, the first African-American mayor um, who was elected the mayor of the city of Detroit, he started something that was called the Farm-A-Lot program. Mayor Young had a vision. He had a vision that if we could take 3,000 empty lots with that were described as eyesores and we can turn them into green gardens. Now, Mayor Young was a Tennessee boy. He was a, he was a, he was a, uh, he was born and raised in Tennessee and he was, um, What's the, he was a, a, a pilot. What was that, that organ? Oh my God, I can't believe, I can't remember um, the T Tuskegee Airmen. And so he was from the South. And so he knew that during the great migration, millions of black folks were migrating from the North, uh, from the South to the North. And so he started the Farm-A-Lot program um, because he thought it was important um, that black folks in Detroit had the ability to own a plot of land and to grow their food. And I think the lesson learned from the Farm-A-Lot program, it established a legacy of helping communities to help themselves. And so it's, it's from that kind of historical context um, that, that, that I do my work here in Detroit. 
Thank you, Davida, for that, that wonderful history. And it's one that is not well communicated or shared. And I really do appreciate that. I do want to go back to Erica to, to think a little bit more about the Black Panther Party's work with children and feeding kids. It, you, you told us about listening to the needs of the community and saying that families were saying, our kids need breakfast, our, our kids need food. How did you get this going? What were the, the steps? What was a normal breakfast like for the, for the kids in, in the community? Well, it depends on where we got the donated food from because Black Panther Party members didn't take a salary. That was unheard of. We came right from the communities we were serving. I came from Southeast Washington, DC. However, a lot of people came from North Richmond, which is kind of like Southeast, or Hunters Point Bayview, which is kind of like North Richmond. It's that way. All of the places where people are forced to live due to all kinds of systemic reasons, including redlining and covenants, not to mention financial poverty we recognized that there was something, there was some particular way in which people were forced to live. And even in the stores that sold food, the quality of that food, let me use Safeway as an example, that's meant to be a chain of box stores, right? But in some communities, the quality of the meat and the vegetables was very poor. How do I know this? Because we went and we looked. So we decided, well, Let's ask the parents what they think their children should have. A little bit of protein, something to drink, something warm, something that will carry them until lunchtime because in some schools at that time there was lunch. But in, in many schools still in the 60s, children walked home if they could for lunch and if they couldn't, they were hungry for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. So that isn't what we wanted. So we also, from the free breakfast program for children, we had food programs all over the country where we gave bags of groceries away. And I wanna let you know because history informs us. The present is telling us what is our next step? And there are young people, and let me just say how much I appreciate young people every day. I say this every time I can. When I wake up in the morning and look at the day, no matter what day it is, I am grateful that there are young people with open hearts and inquisitive, curious, and brilliant minds who are willing to do good for the benefit of all. So I wanna share with you the People's Kitchen Collective in Oakland. And I wanted to read this to you, but I don't wanna take extra time away from our conversation. I'll just tell you that they patterned themselves after the food programs of the Black Panther Party. They're young black and brown women. And they just decided we're gonna do some, some Zoom cook-alongs now and we're going to create food that is nutritious and healthy. And as Corby said, medicine for people. 
because I, I want to say that when I visited South Africa, people who still lived in, they were called provinces, but they were, they were the worst of the worst that's left as the result of apartheid. In every little village that I went into, people were growing herbs and food and their tiny spaces around corrugated tin houses. It was so touching. So back to the People's Kitchen Collective, these women wrote a letter thanking all of us who support them because they were able to, in the last month, give out 400 bags of groceries. I know how difficult that is because the Black Panther Party at one point get in the 70s gave out 10,000 bags of groceries and it took us months to plan it. So out of the goodness of people's hearts, they are seeing that what DeVita called memory, it's collective memory, it's multi-generational memory. They're seeing this and they're doing something. They're not just saying, do I have some money I can give to this? They're giving their bodies, Norbert. They're giving their lives to see that no one is hungry, regardless of their age. I could tell you story after story, but I wanted to tell you about the People's Kitchen Collective because also they give gifts to people who support them, volunteer and or donate to them of nutritious um, rubs for meat or um, seasonings for veggies. It's incredible what they do. They're tiny. But organizations like this need to be supported at a national level. And there are many of them. I'm only telling you about one that sits right down the street from me. Eric, I just wanted to jump in um, really quickly um, on, and on that last part when you talked about um, how there are organizations on the ground locally that need to be supported. That's right. Um, so that they can grow and scale um, because they could reach the, the federal level. And I am just, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I have to tell you, you talk about the young people. I think during this particular point in time, I am just seeing the ingenuity, the brilliance, the innovation um, of my community, which looks like black and indigenous people of color and how they were able to quickly pivot on a dime to respond to this coronavirus and take care of and feed our people. And it's really interesting when you talk about the free breakfast program in 1966 and how the federal government was just embarrassed basically by the work that the Black Panther did. And it created a federal government program because they saw it flourish locally in the community and they replicated. Well, that's exactly what they did to Mayor Coleman A. Young's farm lot program that started in Detroit in 1975. In 1976, because they saw that community garden, urban agriculture, right? And communities helping each other, feeding one another, being allowed to grow. They saw that in the 70s and 80s, there were cities 
that were allowing community garden, might I own cities that were occupied by majority black and brown people that were actually taking on land and growing food. In 1976, the federal government started something that was called the USDA Cooperative Extension Urban Gardens Program. And it's just amazing to me how we know, I know Erica, you know, the brilliance that sits in our community. And yet when it comes to investing in our young people, yet when it comes to investing in stores, particularly in, in food lab restaurants and grocery stores that are owned by black and indigenous people in our communities, we don't get the kind of investment that we need in order to grow and scale our businesses. Our communities don't even get the investment that we need. So at least the government can even set the conditions for our business to flourish. But on a drop of a dime, we responded and put our bodies on the line That's to right. take care of and to feed our people. When nobody else would, we did. Because why? We saw people disproportionately in our community dying. In Detroit, where I sit, Detroiters, Black Detroiters only represent 13%, I'm sorry, Black folks in general only represent 13% of the population in the state of Michigan. But Erica and Norbert, I'm here to tell you, we represented 40% of the infections and the deaths of COVID-19. Why is that so? It's because at every level of our society, Davida, the inequity, the inequitable structure, it's scaffolding, like the scaffolding in the room you're in and the room I'm in and the room that all of the participants today are sitting in, there's something wrong in the scaffolding in the wall of our house that we call the United States. And to sit by and not know how history impacts uh, what's what hangs on that scaffolding, these systems that keep poverty in place. This is not a poor country, financially poor country. We can make excuses if we would like, but if we just look at history, it's not poor. It is possible to shift, but the systems not only are intentionally um, stratified in a caste kind of human divisions way, but also there are people who this does not touch, who are not, who cannot feel what the babies feel when they're hungry and there's no food. I don't know that I have to feel how someone feels when they are harmed. Maybe it's the way that I was raised so that the familiarity with harm allows me to have empathy. Mm. That empathy is a human way of being. We can all have it. Maybe we pretend, Norbert and Davida, that all the babies that are hungry, how about the ones that are on the borders of our United States? I'm sure they're not getting nutritious food. That's right. That's right. 
And you know, Erica, you just brought up something that was so, Norbert, I'm gonna let you get another question in, but I gotta piggyback on what Erica just said because I, because this is so important. This right here is so important, what Erica just said, and I didn't even know she was gonna say it, but I, 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 am, I, am, I, am, I am a huge, as they say, fangirl of Erica Huggins, so I kind of figured that she would lift this up, but this was so important. I don't wanna lose it, Norbert. I just wanna put a pin on it, an explanation point on it, but she talked about empathy. And the reason why I think that is so important is number one, she brought up two very important things, history and, and, and empathy. And I just wanna to touch on the history part real quick because what we are seeing keeps on playing itself over and over and over and over again. Listen, if there's one thing that I love is I love history. I am not a ahistorical person because the thought that our present day has no connection to the past is ridiculous. And so I am a student of history. And so one of the things that um, I have been doing during this moment is I've been digging into archives and I've been doing a lot of reading. And one of the things that I'm reading right now or trying to read is a huge book is 500 pages is probably um, a book that was written in 1899 called The Philadelphia Negro by W.E.B. Du Bois, right? And so the Philadelphia Negro written by W.E.B. Du Bois, he talks about the health trends, right? And hunger and pain, particularly as a sociologist, he went to go study Philadelphia, right? And what he said, he said, broadly speaking, the Negroes as a class dwell in the most unhealthy parts of the city and in the worst houses of those parts. The influence of bad sanitation surroundings is strikingly illustrated in the enormous death rate of the fifth ward. My goodness, it seems like I'm repeating history over and over again. He talks about the fact that black death versus white death in the city of Philadelphia and, and at this particular time, black people were dying at a rate of 89% higher than white folks, right? Y'all, this is happening over and over again. And what W.E.B. Du Bois said that was so poignant, and I wanted to put a pin on empathy, which Erica lifted up, and I quote, W.E.B. Du Bois said the most difficult social problem in the matter of Negro health is this peculiar attitude of the nation toward the well-being of the race. He said, for instance, but few other cases in the history of civilized people where human suffering has been viewed with such particular indifference. What he's talking about then and what Erica is talking about now is an empathy gap. We have no empathy for people who don't look like us, unfortunately, in this country. And so there is an empathy gap that we have to talk about. And we see it played out today, right? Today's empathy gap is how we view white poverty and black poverty, right? We see it played out and we know how this played out. They, when they began to racialize poverty in the media, right? Took place in the 19, what, 70s, 1980s when black folks became the face of government assistance when that wasn't the case at all. Government assistance came out of the New Deal. That was aimed toward white people, not black people. Because if we know our history, we know that the workers that worked in occupations that were occupied doing for black folks during that time, farmers, right? Domestic workers, they were cut out of the New Deal. We know this. And so government assistance program weren't even aimed at us. But in order to divide us, in order to escalate this empathy problem that we have, in our, we, we racialized poverty, right? 
And so I think that that's so important that we lift those those things up so that we can understand that we can't even begin to solve the problem of hunger if we don't even tell the truth about what the core problem is around it. Hunger is not a charity issue. It is a justice issue. Yes. Uh, we are moving into our question and answer session. Um, I do appreciate the thoughts that you have brought forward. And I do want to think about this idea of justice as we wait for questions to start coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts on what exactly are we talking about when we talk about food justice? I realize that seems like a really basic question, but I, I think it's actually a question we don't really have a good handle on. I would love to hear your thoughts. I'll start off with Erica as questions are starting to come in. Well, that's a conversation for the collective wisdom, Norbert. And as Davida was talking, I think that I could almost hear people saying, yes, but what is the next step? People often ask me, is there, is there a right way to take the next step? Is there a formula? No, there isn't we can all do something to the points made today by davida and myself about how people just step up black panther party created people's free medical clinics because the government wasn't providing access to medical care or if it if there was access people of color had to wait long hours sometimes birthing babies on hospital emergency room benches uh, we made some headway in that in the 1970s here in Oakland. But I'm saying, and in many other parts of the country and the world, but I'm saying that these, they're in every, these inequities are in every institution of society because it was set up intentionally. Um, there's a Somalian proverb that says, poverty is slavery. Mm. It touches my heart. It's not said with any snide aside. It's the truth. And to intentionally keep people in conditions of poverty is, is an overarching federal and state problem. So I think that as we are thinking about voting in this next week, we also need to be thinking about holding um, elected officials and others accountable so that funding can go into communities to provide food, food. In the United States, we're talking about food. That is unjust. So I'm a restorative justice practitioner where there is harm, I sit in circles with high school students, incarcerated people, women of all kinds, you name it. There are circles where we can talk about the harm and whoever's created the harm in that circle or those circles can acknowledge by being responsible and accountable. And the way to ask forgiveness is to do it different. But first we have to declare that there is harm. It's violent. It isn't just um, ambiguous harm. Um, so 
justice means, restoring justice means exactly what it says, where there has been an inequity, where there has been a continuous um, stream of violence meted out to one group of people or two groups of people or all of the people in one group, it, it does, I don't need to name them. We need to really think about what we can do together and individually to shift it. I believe in the power of people. That was the Black Panther Party's call. All power to the people. The Black Panther Party created coalitions with black, brown, and young white people in the Appalachian Mountains, it, Puerto Rican people in New York and Chicago, Latinx people all over the country. And our coalitions worked because poor people had the same conditions. And race is the excuse for this hierarchy of human division called caste that keeps people divided by skin color. So we, we went beyond that. And you wouldn't know that because, you know, the, as I said earlier, the Black Panther Party was boxed in in mainstream media. But justice, you feed people. Here's justice. A woman I know who actually is from South America and people get us confused because there's something about us. That happens, doesn't it, Norbert? Yes. People call her me and, and call me her. So we became friends because we were laughing about that. And one day she said to me, you know what, Erica, all the conversations I have with you about what we can do different, how we can be loving of one another and communities beyond ours. She said that as a black woman, I can't, from South America, I can't understand the poverty that I see in the United States. I said, so what will you do? She said, well, can I tell you what I am doing? There is a houseless man who sleeps on the bus stop in front of my house. And every day I speak to him. I don't ignore him. And we both acknowledge that there are people who still do. Pretend they don't see. Again, that lack of empathy. And Davida, she said that she would go out to the bus stop sometime and sit down next to him with his bags. And one day she went back in her house and she opened her refrigerator to make her dinner and she realized, wait a minute, I have food. What is that man eating? What is that man eating? Where would he get dinner, breakfast and lunch? And once again, breakfast, lunch and dinner. She made her dinner, she lives alone. She said, I made enough for two, I always do. And I fed him and I sat there and we ate together. And I stood there with tears streaming down my face because that's justice. Now, if everybody did something about the distribution of food to those who are hungry, imagine what would shift. And the hope is, Davida, 
that something in the government would be so embarrassed that things would shift. And it takes a long time for things to shift, a long time, sometimes 50 years, sometimes more. However, that woman stays in my mind for the empathy and the compassion. She didn't have pity for him. He was another human being like herself. So we, we meet injustice with justice. And, it's, and it does, it's not instead of doing things external to us, it's in addition to doing the work inside our hearts so that we don't make differences between us because we cannot see other people in our communities. We can think about what all of this means. I wish I had time to say more, but I know that we would love to have questions. We do, and I have a question here, and, and I'll, I'll open this up. We're, we're in our last few minutes, so I'll raise this question that came in. Um, the person writes, I am a new Black, um, I assume, executive director of a historically white-led food access organization. And the person continues to say, I want to incorporate anti-racist practices into our work. What resources do you suggest we look at as we move on to this journey? Well, first I would, I would say, since that's the work I do now, um, Davida, I know I said that in our meeting, but I facilitate conversations about bringing organizations from um, the place that they're in to become um, equitable at every tier, every level of their work. And one of the terms used to describe that process is becoming an anti-racist organization. And so I could mention that World Trust Educational Services does that with huge organizations and with small organizations or budding organizations to make sure that we're on the same page about the harm that minoritizing and racializing people does. It's violence. And when we are upset, we get called violent, right? But that is violence, to turn, to turn aside from the harm that happens every day and every moment of the day. So I think that starting with some, some um, learning in workshops or trainings, whatever the organization wants, um, is key, whether it's with World Trust or another organization, not important, but it is important work to do because people think that, for instance, because slavery ended on paper, what, why does this conversation keep coming up? Because it ended on paper and then reconstruction, then Jim Crow, and then three strikes as an example, or the still medical discrimination. There's so many things and we need to look at them 
and assess them in our organizations in order for our organizations to change. No harm will come to people if they become curious and have wonder about how things work in the very organization that they're in. Why is the organization primarily white? What's the origin story of the organization? What's its history? Why? What, what do you imagine as ways to change? So that's all I can say at this point. It is a big, it's a big process and it's a healthy one. There is so much unhealthiness in the way that we think about one another. Thank you. Davida, would you like to, uh, to comment on this? And I, I should say we're in our last couple of minutes. So would love to hear your thoughts if you would like to share. Now, Erica is an expert in, in that particular ring. That's, as she said, that's that's what, what, what she does. I would love to, if we could squeeze in um, possibly another question. I know we only have like maybe two minutes left. So I'm, I just, I wanna, you know, honor the folks who, who took time out uh, to be with us. And so try to squeeze in as many questions as we possibly can. I, I, w I will, I will. And so, so one of the questions that has come up is if people are listening and seeing the positive approach. I mean, it's a tough world out there. We're seeing some things that are unpleasant. How do you stay positive and how do you turn that energy into action? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just answer um, um, really quickly. And I think we, we shared um, a little bit of this on our, on our pre-call. Um, and again, this is me um, digging um, into the archives and a book that I'm currently reading um, that was written by um, Eddie Claude Jr. Um, that's called Begin Again, which is this love letter um, that he wrote alongside uh, James Baldwin um, um, as a love letter to activists. And as I explained um, in our um, in our pre-call, there was an interview that was done in, in 1970 for Ebony Magazine. Um, and it was 1970, it was really important. And the interviewer asked James Baldwin after, of course, King had already um, been assassinated and James Baldwin, of course, um, had attempted suicide. And the interviewer just asked Mr. Baldwin, he says, what is it about hope? He asked him, what then about hope. And James Baldwin simply answered, and this is what keeps me positive, Norbert, really quickly, is James Baldwin said something. He said, hope is something that you have to find every day. And so, Norbert, it is that hope in the every day that keeps me, that keeps me, that keeps me positive. I mean, I think that there are many things um, that are solutions to our food justice problem, whether it be the de decentralization of the food economy that I'm seeing right now entrepreneurs, farmers being able to turn on the drop of a dime, that keeps me hope, hopeful. Land distribution is happening, right? When I see the Detroit Black Farmers Freedom Fund and reallocating the $65,000 that they raised and they're giving that money to Black Detroiters so they can buy their land, that keeps me hopeful. Like the conversation and conscious awareness around setting the conditions so that we can have an honest conversation around reparations, that keeps me hopeful. But I think the thing that keeps me hopeful more than anything is this thing that we need is called community joy. Y'all, this is this joy that I feel when I'm at home now cooking with my family. That keeps me hopeful. This reconnection to food in a way that we have never had before. We've had to slow down. We've had to stop. We've had to pause. We had to reconnect with our food ways, gardening together. And I hope this does not become a trend. I want this to become something that 
we keep going, joy brings me hope, joy. And I know hope is a luxury, right? That many of us can't afford, but I want us to be able to be able to have conversations like this, Norbert and Erica, and I see Elliot is now on the screen, so that we can dream far beyond our limitations of our conditions and to find hope and to find joy. Well, thank you so much, Davida. I find joy in those comments. And Erica, thank you for your comments. We are at the end of our time. I want to thank all of the people who have organized this. Uh, folks from the Aspen Institute, Food and Society, Corby Kummer and uh, Tracy Anderson. And I would like to now turn it over to our, our guests, our hosts rather, El Elliot uh, Gaskins from Share Our Strength. Thank you both. Thank you. As we conclude, I wanna say Norbert, Davida, Erica, thank you so much. We are, I think I speak for many in saying we are moved, we are inspired and I hope many of us are invigorated. The only disappointment I have is that we don't have another hour to continue this conversation. And that also for all the people still on, we look forward to continuing this journey of learning with all of you. Look out for an invitation for the second session of this series, which will take place in December, and please tell others. Also look out for our summary to action report where we'll share many of the links, resources, and incredible wisdom, wisdom that you heard today. As we conclude, I'll leave you with two brief things. Number one, vote. If you have not done so already, I hope you have a plan, please vote. And finally, I will say, and this speaks to the, the questions that Erica brought up about how we all can do something. I'll leave you with a question to reflect on that was posed by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Life's most persistent an urgent question is what are you doing for others? Thanks so much for joining us and we look forward to continuing this conversation. Take care, everybody.